Hi, this is Lindsay Throne-Knight, she and they pronouns, and I work in student development services at TCU. And this is Leadership from the Couch, a podcast from the TCU Leadership Center where we explore questions about where our TCU values meet, leadership principles in the Horn Frog experience. And we are kicking off a new year, a new semester. And I think most humans right now are looking out for ways to make 2021 a better year than 2020. So our episode today on mindful leadership should hopefully give folks a lot to think about in that vein, in that arena. Uh, but first I want to explain a couple of logistical things before I introduce our guests uh, and explain a little something that the Leadership Center staff will be trying out this semester. We've streamlined some of our programs to line up with the topics that we're talking about in the podcast. So for the next few weeks, we're really going to be focusing on today's podcast topic of mindful leadership. Um, so our leadership chats and our leadership scholars workshop uh, in the coming weeks are going to focus on that. If you aren't familiar with leadership chats, it's uh, something we started last semester to really get out on campus and try to safely engage students with questions to make them think about leadership in their own lives. So uh, next week, you will see Leadership Center staff out and about on on campus in our masks with some questions to, to give you some, uh, some things to think about in terms of mindful leadership. And for those of you interested or participating in our Leadership Scholars Program this semester, we're offering electives to build credit hours through a series of shorter workshops than we have in the past. Uh, and one of those electives will be an hour-long workshop on mindful leadership. That'll be on Wednesday, February 10th from 11 a.m. to noon. Um, and that'll be on Zoom. You can sign up and get all of the um, login information at leadership.tcu.edu. So especially if you are intrigued and want some more after our conversation today, check that out on the website. Um, so with all of those logistics out of the way, uh, I would like to introduce you to our podcast guest for today's Mindful Leadership Conversation. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Mark Dennis is a professor of religion and director of the Contemplative Studies program here at TCU. Um, and Max Galansky is a TCU graduate who majored in business information systems, minored in sustainability, and was involved with the Contemplative Studies uh, department as a student as well. So um, I want to turn it over to both of you to tell us a little bit more about yourself uh, and really how you got started um, on your journey with mindfulness. Sure. Do you want me to start, Lindsay? Or? Sure, that would be great. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this is Mark Dennis, and uh, thanks for having us. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. And um, I'll just say a little bit about my background, how I got into mindfulness and meditation and kind of my experience with leadership. Um, I, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin um, with a degree in business finance and um, I was hired to uh, start up and manage a small company, so I had some experience uh, working in a company. Uh, and then after that, I worked. I did that for about a year, and then was um, moved to Boston and worked in a mutual fund. So I had a couple years in business. I discovered it wasn't for me, um, and uh, got into meditation. I had a lot of friends who were uh, working in the mutual fund uh, who were really into meditation and. So that eventually led me to Japan, and I lived in Japan and India uh, for about eight years, doing a lot of different kinds of meditation. My primary practice is uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, and I did a lot of Zen retreats when I was in uh, Japan. 
and I came back, got into a Buddhist studies program at the University of Wisconsin, where I, which is in Madison, which is my hometown, where I went as an undergrad. Uh, and then I came to TCU in 2007. And um, I teach, my training is in Buddhism. I'm a specialist in East Asian religions. So I teach courses in Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism. And then over the last four or five years, what's really exciting, more and more mindfulness uh, classes. And we have a group, um, if any listeners are interested, they're welcome to, to uh, send me an email and I'll add them to our mailing list. Um, but we have a faculty and staff group, and then we have a student group. And you mentioned that Max was uh, the co-director of uh, the student group in the first kind of iteration. We're in our third year now of, of the student group. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, and then turn it over to Max, is uh, because I have this training in mindfulness, uh, but also experience in the business world and um, in leadership in that capacity, and then as director of the Contemplative Studies uh, program, I, um, I taught uh, one time, and I was ho hoping that I would do it a second time, but it hasn't worked out yet, uh, to teach a course called The Mindful Leader in uh, the Neely Business School in a program they have called um, the BNSF Leadership Program. So I think that's enough of an introduction. I turn over to you, Max. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Lindsay. Um, it's really a cool thing to be able to interact with the TCU community in this way and um, to sit alongside Dr. Dennis is a high honor. So um, thank you for inviting me to this. And so just a little bit about me. I grew up in the Chicago area um, and TCU was surprisingly popular option being so far away with where my high school was. Um, so I ended up going down to Texas and then after graduating, um, I returned back to the Chicago area to start working at AbbVie in a rotational development program, um, placing me in different areas of the company, all related to information technology, which is very closely affiliated to the business information systems major at, at Neely. Um, and so that program is rounding out um, this summer, it's been flying by, but in terms of how I got involved in mindfulness, it, it's a hard question and a lot of people have um, a single event, often crisis-related or stress-related, um, and that's not at least how I currently <laughs> retrospect on it. That's not my interpretation, um, but around junior year in college is when I, when I started to pick up a consistent and more focused, and <laughs> the word serious seems strange in this context, but serious meditation practice, um, largely due to getting involved with the contemplative studies group. Um, but I do think that also came at a time where I started to feel more like an adult and think more adult thoughts and sort of experience the cloud of responsibilities that I was about to set out into um, upon graduating. And I think I longed for um, a type of easefulness that I experienced at a younger age. Um, it might be important to mention I grew up in um, the time before smartphones, so I still got to experience um, a world without so much distraction. And I think um, I always had a, a part of me that wanted to return or at least um, temporarily <laughs> return 
to that state of mind. Um, so I started getting more interested in meditation, yoga, um, started dabbling across different traditions or secularized practices. Um, after graduating, I went to India to try and deepen my understanding of yoga and probably left with a lot more questions than answers as Dr. Dennis knows. Um, and I think that's probably good enough for now, but um, one additional thing, maybe uh, as it relates to mindful leadership, um, Dr. Ship is a professor that was influential for me within Neely um, and allowed me to write a research paper in her class on mindfulness in the workplace, um, which was very theoretical and there wasn't a whole lot of research available. Um, and I've dabbled with trying to integrate some mindfulness um, practices into my current work program. Um, so it's interesting to see what happens in real life versus just doing a paper. And it's a lot more complicated. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, thank you all both for sharing. There's, I feel like there's so much to Max and what you were sharing that I, I can relate to and I see our students right now even kind of transitioning in that um, kind of that adulting mind frame, right? Um, and it's interesting too, I was just in a seminar today where a lot of students were talking about how they have to keep busy. Um, and I, I thought since we were preparing for this podcast tonight, I was just thinking about that, that idea. Uh, and I know when I was a college student, I thought, oh, I could never meditate or do anything anything in that line because I can never quiet my mind. And so as I, I know for me, as I've learned more about mindfulness, um, I, I've been able to, to grasp the concept a little bit more. But as we, we all kind of talk about these words and what that means, I want to back up for our listeners a little bit and see if you can um, talk to us, you know, for you all, how you define mindfulness and how that relates to, you know, we're talking about a meditation practice. What does that mean? Where does it come from? Like maybe we can give people a little bit of background to clarify what we're talking about. Sure, uh, Lindsay, I, I'm happy to take a stab at that. And, and I do understand the point about being uh, busy. I just, I'm asking all my students this semester and last semester, which is the first time I've done that, to meditate and do mindfulness practices uh, the entire semester and getting convincing them that this is good for them uh, because we have this kind of mentality of always, you know, time, this time is money metaphor is so deeply ingrained in our thinking that we always have to be doing something and it's really unhealthy. Um, so to define these kind of basic terms, a lot of times mindfulness and meditation are stuck together, they're conflated, uh, but really they're separate kinds of practices and um, so in the context of Buddhism, mindfulness uh, simply means uh, paying attention, uh, being present uh, to everything you do. Like in uh, the Zen monastery, this is what we were taught, you know, um, chop wood, carry water is a famous phrase, meaning when you're chopping wood, you chop wood. When you're carrying water, you carry water. Um, instead of most of what we do is we kind of go back and forth between the past and the future, and then we miss out on, on the present. Um, and so mindfulness in coming out of the Buddhist context is a reference to that. However, um, the, there's a mindfulness uh, boom. There's a, there's a great uh, documentary some 
uh, some of the listeners might be interested in from PBS called Mindfulness Goes Mainstream. Uh, and there's a lot of books about this, but it describes how a lot of teachers are taking mindfulness out of the Buddhist context and then kind of repackaging it in, in a secular way, meaning it's, it, they've taken, taken out the religious content. And that, I mean, it makes sense in a way because a lot of people who could benefit from mindfulness practice don't wanna be Buddhist. Um, but there is something that's lost. There's a cost to that. And we could circle back to that if you'd like. Um, and so, so that's just kind of a basic definition of mindfulness, just paying attention. And we live in a mindless culture, smartphones, and there's so many things constantly drawing our attention away from the present. So it's really a challenge. And as I think you know, um, there's a mental health crisis going on among um, uh, young people, people in college now, and part of it is due to this, this kind of culture they've grown up in. Meditation, on the other hand, generally, with some exceptions, for example, there's walking meditation that we would do at the Zen monastery, but meditation is um, an extended period. I mean, very common is 20 minutes, and you sit oftentimes on the floor on a cushion, although you can sit in a chair, and then there's some kind of, oftentimes there's a repetition. So maybe you're counting numbers or you're counting your breath or there's a, some kind of something you visualize like a, like a happy place. Um, there, there are many guided meditations and a lot of people, including my students like those. Um, so somebody's talking usually in a very calm voice and um, there's one that I like a lot, Max and I do fairly regularly, which is called Metta, M-E-T-T-A, Metta or Loving Kindness Meditation. Um, so they're really different practices, although, as I said, they're often uh, uh, conflated. And the secularized versions of, of these practices that have been, become common have really permeated uh, American popular culture. So. You see it in business as, you know, Max is uh, trying to introduce it while keeping the ethical component of it. So you see it in business, sports, uh, there's famous, you know, like Pete Carroll of the Seahawks or uh, lots of other, other coaches um, who were, are into this. In fact, some of the TCU teams do this. Uh, the military, uh, lots of different people are using these practices for various kinds of reasons to learn to focus, calm down, uh, all kinds of uh, things. So maybe I'll stop there and let uh, Max uh, kind of add what, what he would like to. Thank you. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you went first, Dr. Dance, because you do have the more credentialed perspective on um, all things meditation in terms of origin and history. So thank you for that. Um, uh, in terms of what I can try and add to this conversation, um, I was recently listening to a podcast with John Kabat-Zinn, who is a very famous person within this whole mindfulness <clears throat> now field. Um, and he created a secular version called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Um, and something I'm really glad he was reminding people of in, this, in his talk was and Mark, you can correct me on this, um, but in a lot of Asian languages, the word for um, mind 
and heart are the same. Um, so when we think of mindfulness, at least from my own experience, a lot gets associated with cognitive and um, like neuroscientific or, or thoughts or um, like performance and achievement that comes from the area above the shoulders. So I think that um, there is a, like Mark mentioned, ethical or more like accepting attitude that often gets forgotten with the mindfulness when it gets swept up in the, in the movement that he mentioned. Um, so I wanted to emphasize that part that um, there's a difference between knowing that I'm really angry and letting um, that anger in a healthy way run its course before I act on it. Um, so that's one thing that I wanted to add. And then um, in terms of meditation and what that looks like, um, I think it's important to restate that it doesn't have to look a certain way because especially um, as was mentioned, a lot gets propagated through um, movies, music, culture, and often it looks like though even the word Zen sort of fits into this situation um, where people think of um, someone sitting peacefully with their eyes closed and that's meditation. Um, but for a lot of people that might not be what works best for them, um, even just within the world of mindfulness. So whether it's um, walking, um, partaking in some sort of artistic activity, music, um, mindfulness can be extended into a lot of different things. Um, and I think that's helpful for people to know if they're strongly averse initially to the more formal practice. Um, and I think artists and athletes experience mindfulness sort of as a byproduct of their um, occupation. Um, but for those of us who aren't necessarily so focused on um, um, refining one skill, we're sort of juggling a lot of different things, um, meetings and emails and all that. It doesn't feel the same way as like becoming a really good basketball player or, or something like that. Um, so I think for those of us who don't have an activity like that, um, creating a practice is really important because then we have the ability to stabilize our minds in a way that otherwise doesn't fit naturally into our modern workday. Um, so I think it could mean a lot of different things, but those are some of the at least considerations that I think are worth um, bringing to light. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much in, in here in the answers, and I think we'll probably have some links in the show notes to some of the things that you've mentioned, the documentary and a few of those things, um, if people want to dig deeper. But I want to I want to kind of talk a little bit more about these different areas. You know, Mark, you mentioned the military or um, within sports, or both of you having um, experience in business. And Max, you're kind of I think living this as an alum in the business world right now. What does, and this is really speaking to this idea of how does mindfulness relate to leadership, right? What does that bring or how do you see it in these different industries bringing something of value to people who are trying to lead in those various different fields and industries? 
and maybe we'll start with Max this time since you're kind of you're living it right now as a new alum uh, and I don't know if that looks different for you what it brought to your leadership experience as a student versus now someone who's in the business world um yeah I can try and give it a shot and well it's an interesting point for me to be working with this in the corporate world because I, I'm not a leader. I don't have people reporting to me, um, even though it's re-emphasized again and again that everyone is a leader in some way, which is true. Um, but in the way that people think of as like leading an organization uh, or something like that is not currently <laughs> where I sit. Um, but I have noticed a big, um, increase in the focus on mindful leadership in my, my company's culture. Um, so that trickles down, I think, all the way to my level. And I should mention that like, I'm in a leadership development program. So it's almost like a um, they're trying to introduce some ideas that will come up down the road. Um, but why it's important, I think, is evident in a lot of experiences with leaders that maybe do not practice mindfulness and I think people can think of a lot of examples with those they've interacted in the past um, and I, I used the example of anger earlier so maybe not that one but um, you probably wouldn't want to be working for someone that is very preoccupied with themselves um, and I think mindfulness is a really useful tool and not the only tool but a very useful one to be able to step back um, and see the contents of your mind as um, not something that you're um, the same as uh, or identifying as. Um, and people that are leading big organizations have a lot on their mind, I imagine. Um, and to be able to increase the likelihood that they'll be thinking of those on their team versus just themselves and of course this depends on the person, um, but giving them that ability, I think makes the situation better for everyone um, and people will be happier when working for them. And I, I think there's more mindful leaders than not. And probably that's why this is a quality that is sought after because it's um, useful at that level. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons it's important because it just makes you a, a better person to report to. Um, but aside from that, um, listening is a big thing that's been emphasized as a skill to work on, and not just in life relationships, but in work relationships now, um, which is described as something new. Uh, I don't know how new it really is, but um, that's another big uh, thing that mindfulness can increase. Um, and I. I think I'll, I'll leave it at that for now, um, but it's, maybe it would be worth adding that um, it doesn't really only pertain to being a good leader. I think just at an individual or lateral or um, a community level, a lot of people are struggling a lot with their mental health um, in the business world and beyond, but um, 
we had an opportunity at, at work recently to voice some of the experiences that people are going through um, around mental health and it's pretty severe, uh, I would say. Um, so it, it doesn't necessarily have to be only something that's used to make better leaders, but just something to make a better culture, I think is equally as important. Um, and that's maybe newer to why it's being introduced with COVID and the rest of the um, things that are going on. Um, so a lot of ways, a lot of entryways. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And Mark, I know you've you've taught a course on, you know, this very topic, linking mindfulness and leadership. So yeah, can maybe you could share with us some of the the links that you've made and shared with students in that work. Sure, Lindsay, I'd be happy to. Um, let me start by just uh, echoing a couple points that that Max made. Um, he 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 described um, people who engage in mindfulness and meditation as, as being um, less preoccupied uh, with themselves. And there's some, one of the really exciting things, and some of your listeners might be interested in this, is that there's uh, a lot of scientific research going on now to see what happens, you know, within the brain to emotions all kinds of things that go on when people engage in these kinds of practices. One of the really interesting findings that they discovered was people who've done a lot of meditation uh, ref uh, don't use the word I, the self-reference, uh, nearly as much as people who don't have that kind of practice. And, and the implication of that is that they're better or they're more oriented towards connecting uh, with others and um, become less ego involved. And as Max was articulating, um, these are the kinds of people you want to work for uh, because they, they look to connect to others and it's not just about themselves. And, you know, I've worked in, in, in business and I've been in lots of institutions and have worked with people who are very kind of uh, self-involved and that is not a recipe for creating a good culture. And, um, you know, Max kind of ended his comment with talking about, you know, how mindfulness creates culture. And in the mindful leader class that I taught, there was a lot of discussion about creating the kind of culture in which people will feel respected, uh, where in, you know, in difficult circumstances, like Max mentioned in the pandemic, they can feel safe articulating uh, their concerns and that that they're heard, and so um, that's another point that uh, Max made, which I think is is really uh, emphasized in um, mindfulness practice uh, coming out of the Buddhist context, but also in the secularized version, which is genuinely listening to other people. Um, a lot of us don't do that well. Um, you know, if you follow what's going on in our society, I don't think there's a lot of what we call deep and compassionate listening going on. And so trying not to be so ego involved and trying, you know, there's the tendency as someone's talking, oh, I'm going to make this point or that point or this, I'm going to refute that. Um, and then not, not really listening to them on a, on a deep level. And so 
in the courses like the Mindful Leader or the other mindfulness courses that I've I've taught and co-taught with Andy Ford, the founder of our group, and Blake Hester, a professor in philosophy. We do, we really emphasize deep and compassionate uh, listening. It's really a valuable skill. Um, and then, I mean, I think it's, it makes sense that someone who is, is, is mindful and who has engaged in these practices and um, becomes calm, and one of the distinctions that we often make is between reacting and responding. And uh, Max had mentioned anger. Um, you know, if, 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 if you work with somebody who kind of has that hair trigger and is blaming people, that's, that, that's, that can become toxic. And so this distinction that I mentioned, and um, a lot of the teachers make this, I think John Kabat-Zinn, who Max mentioned, and others talk about this distinction between reacting and responding. Reacting is kind of that knee-jerk <clears throat> reaction where somebody says something or cuts you off in traffic or your boss, you know, does something that pushes your buttons and, and it's just immediate. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I've reacted in, in anger and almost always regretted it. But what the practices do, both mindfulness and meditation is create the capacity to, to create a space between the stimulus and, and uh, response. And that's called responding. And that's much healthier. And, and it's a really valuable skill uh, for, for leaders. A lot of the things that, a lot of the qualities that come from engaging in these kinds of practices are very simple. Um, the practices are, you know, Max and I both describe them. They're kind of easy to describe. They're hard to do. They, they work against some of our natural tendencies, um, but there's a lot of benefit to them. And they would not, you know, there's a lot of hype and, and that's unfortunate, but they wouldn't be taking root in the business world, in the, you know, in sports, in, uh, in the military, in you know, all these other places, if there wasn't some kind of value uh, to them. Um, and there's, a, there's actually, a, you know, to go back to the course that you asked about, um, there are a lot of good books. I was really surprised in preparation for this class, The Mindful Leader. I read a number of um, kind of mindful leadership books, and there's some really good ones. Um, there's, there's one that was written by Mark Lesser. Uh, and it's, he describes seven qualities of a mindful leader. And he had kind of an interesting experience where he came out, he was trained in the Zen tradition, which I studied. He, he was in uh, a monastery in California, and then he went into entrepreneurship. But he took the principles of, um, you know, what he had learned in the Zen monastery, mindfulness, meditation, and other things, and applied them to the business world and has been very successful. Um, so that, that's what I would say. So I want to, uh, kind of loop back around to, so if we have people who are listening and they, um, you know, they're seeing the value in this, they're thinking, yeah, I would love to feel more calm. I would love to respond rather than react. Um, and they're seeing the value I want. I want to um, talk about how somebody would start a practice, but also loop back around to this critique that you mentioned earlier in the conversation, Mark, and that's with the um, kind of the 
packaging or repackaging of mindfulness? Uh, and are there things that people need to be careful of um, as they start their own practice or to be, you know, I was about to say to be mindful of, which feels a little strange, but you know, what, what do they need to be aware of and thinking about as they um, start their own practice or they look for ways to develop mindfulness as it applies to leadership, but also knowing that, right, this has been repackaged in a way that maybe has taken it out of its original form or its original intention. Sure. What would, Lindsay, what would you like us to start with? There were a couple of different issues there. Oh, yes. Let's start, let's start with how one would kind of start their own practice. Where, where would you go with that? That's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's, um, I mentioned before that our culture is, um, you know, this root metaphor of time is money. We grow up with it and, you know, we talk about time always in terms of money we can spend and waste, you know, time. And so um, that, that, that kind of aphorism, uh, don't, don't just sit there, do something, you know, always be doing something is, is really kind of deeply embedded in our culture. And so trying to start this kind of practice works against that. However, I think what is successful is, or what's been important with students has been, many of them are in a crisis uh, because of the pandemic and, and there's been men serious mental health issues that predate the pandemic. And so I think that's made them more open to trying these kinds of practices. And it's important to start small. There's actually, and I'd be happy to send this to you, there's a podcast, um, that I, I listened to a lot of podcasts and there was a, a guy named James Clear who I did not know, but he wrote a book called Atomic Habits. And he appeared on one of the podcasts I talked about and the host, he, he's, a, he's an MD in the UK. His name is Rangan Chatterjee and I really like him. But he says, how do I, how do I get somebody to meditate? You know, they, it's really hard, it's good for them. The science shows this and it's really hard to do. And, and his argument was to start really small. Um, so just do a minute or just go, you know, just go sit on a cushion and then stop, <laughs> you know, just show up, get in the habit of doing that. Uh, because he said a lot of people will fail because they want to start doing 20 minutes right away. And so um, building up very slowly is really important. I would also say that there, um, finding the time of day the type of meditation, and if possible, finding a group. I, I've been trying to convince my students to get involved in, in a group uh, because that, that kind of holds you accountable. It, it gives you a community and we should not underestimate the value of having a community because it's a support group and um, you know there's a lot of benefits uh, to that. I would also say that there's um, some really good books. I think, Lindsay, you and I talked about them. Um, Dan Harris's 10% Happier is really well written. He's an ABC News journalist who had, like Max was talking about, he had a meltdown, a crisis, a meltdown on national TV. Uh, and then another book that we really like and students love is called uh, The Mindful 20-something by Holly Rogers, who's an MD, practicing psychiatrist at Duke University. It's very well written, it's short, but very accessible and lots of good practices. And she has a website where you can uh, try things out. 
but you know, anybody who's listening and wants to get, you know, give it a try and get involved with a group can write to me. We have, I, we send out emails about kind of our activities. Uh, Max and I and a few other leaders in our group are going to be doing a, leading a Tuesday night meditation starting next week. We also have a bi-monthly uh, Friday night meditation. And so getting to meet other people that have been doing it is, is really a valuable thing. I think just starting on your own with no instruction is, is difficult, um, though not impossible. Yeah, that, thank you. That's really helpful. I'm going to link to a lot of stuff, like I said, in the show notes. And I will second, I know Mark, you and I have talked about 10% happier before. That's really how I started my practice. And I, I know we'll put that a link to that in the show notes as well, because educators and students can get uh, free access to their, their guided meditations and their podcasts. So that's kind of a nice bonus there. Um, so what about this kind of critique of this secular mindfulness movement or the kind of the modern packaging, like you said, can we, can we go back to that and what people need to be aware of as they, they consume, you know, a lot of things that are out there that might not be true to what meditation and mindfulness is supposed to be. Sure, Lindsay. Um, I'll say a few things and then turn it over to, to Max. Um, but this is, this is a, this is a kind of a big debate going on. Um, in kind of the contemplative studies world. And contemplative studies, I don't think we kind of defined it, but that, that refers to meditation, mindfulness, yoga, tai chi, all those kinds of practices. Um, and there's very active group of contemplative studies practitioners, uh, professors, um, and, and, and many others. And this is a, a, this is a really big debate because and and Andy Ford, our founder, and I wrote an article and we talked to, to some degree about this. And we're of two minds. Um, it is it is it is valuable to take these practices out of their context so that they're accessible to more people because the science shows they help people. However, uh, as Max and I both articulated if you remove the ethical component, which is very, a very important part in, in the kind of Buddhist conception of mindfulness and meditation practice, that's, that, that is not good. You're losing something that's important. And to, to make money from it um, is also to um, contravene the basic kind of spirit of what these practices are meant to be. And so there's a, there's a really good book uh, Andy and I use in our class called Mindful, uh, Mindful America. And um, uh, Jeff Wilson, yeah, Jeff Wilson is the author. It's very good. And it talks, of it, I mean, it's really an articulation of this, this process. And, and what you see is, you know, slowly over time, you have the movement away from people trained in these traditions. So uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is a really well-known uh, Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk. He's in his 90s now, uh, who was a big advocate for mindfulness. And there are many others, but they were trained in Buddhist practice. They learned the ethical um, teachings. And so they, they combined these, they integrated these. And then you, you have a lot of people who um, have been trained in Buddhism, but then have taken it and recognized that, you know, I want to make this accessible. And um, so they downplay 
um, say the Buddhist element. John Kabat-Zinn, who Max mentioned, um, is some is a good example of this. Holly Rogers, I don't know to what degree she studied Buddhism, but there's Buddhist influences in her book. She quotes from the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and others. Um, so, so that's, I, I don't, and I don't think Andy would have a problem with that. That's understandable. But then you, you see kind of the other extreme where uh, you have people or organizations, companies who have no real training, just slapping mindfulness on something to make it, um, you know, to make some money. Um, and that, that can kind of taint the whole enterprise. Um, Andy and I found a really good example of this uh, from Sodexo. You probably know the French multinational that runs our cafeteria. They, had, they have their mindful menu and they had this contest while we were writing our article um, to name, I think it was the mindful taco. And uh, I mean, it's funny, but it's not, you know, because it's, they're, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> they're not trained in this. And so, um, but this is this is what happens in probably a lot of cultures, but definitely in the United States. Um, you know, this has happened with yoga as men, as as Max mentioned, with Zen. Um, so this this is it, it's it's tricky because there's a lot of good that comes from it, uh, but there's also um, a lot of hype. So and money making. Yeah, I don't, and Max, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that, please. I don't want to cut you off, but I did want to, I wanted to come back to something you said in the beginning. Um, you said after you graduated, you went to India uh, and that you, I, I like that you said you came back with a lot more questions than answers. And I, I love that because I think I'm sure a lot of college students, especially our soon to be grads, they can relate to this idea of the unknown. And I think, especially, you know, just that age is so much marked by, I don't know where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing. And I, I do think in my experience, um, and in my practice, mindfulness has taught me a lot about being able to sit with that discomfort. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can talk about, um, you know, being a recent grad and having all of these unanswered questions and adding more to that, what was that process like and how has mindfulness been important to you in working, you know, in this stage of your life where there is so much that's unknown? Yeah, there is a lot there and I'll, I'll try and speak to each part of your question. Um, and also, I think a lot of these will also answer some of the common, um, I like the, fra the phrase near enemies of mindfulness um, because there is so much good but there's like things that are sort of like creeping up behind the good that can easily turn bad um, but as far as going to um, India goes I, I mean one of the really valuable things about traveling that unfortunately is now so inhibited is um, you can contrast your normal life experience with something drastically different um, and whether it was cultural and um, like philosophical or just the food that's eaten and the diet that's prescribed there was differences around every corner um, so I, I really valued that experience and aside from the inquiry into like yoga and meditation but just 
like trying to open my eyes to different um, ways of being in the world. Um, and I think that that's not totally unrelated from mindfulness. Um, one of the, maybe now I'll start to speak to some of the near enemies. Um, one of the things I'm really happy about is mindfulness is being used in the workplace to address unconscious or implicit biases, um, which is great work. Um, and it wasn't always used for that. It started out more for like focus and stress relief and productivity, but this is a whole new angle. Um, but this transition sort of speaks to the near enemy. Um, maybe put more simply, it's possible to relieve a lot of your stress and not catch a glimpse of any of your biases. <laughs> so that is sort of a problem uh, when a lot of mindfulness is seeing how the way you are creates issues in relationship or just more broadly. Um, but it's possible to set that all aside. And that's, I think, the, the thing that um, should be paid most attention to and try to avoid doing that um, however possible. Um, another way this happens, and um, I wanted to make sure I was clear in the beginning too um, about anger is it's not that anger is bad and it needs to be um, eliminated. Um, I, so I think that a lot of the times we don't want it to come out because it's sort of scary and causes a lot of issues, but it also can be internalized. Um, and I think that both of those things happen when there's not the presence of mindfulness but when there is, it can, you can be with the anger where it doesn't harm you and it doesn't harm other people. Um, and to your question about graduating and having a lot of questions and what am I doing and all this, um, I think the ambiguity or openness or uncertainty is what drives a lot of that um, uncomfortability or conflict and one of my favorite definitions of meditation more broadly is habituation to openness. So you're getting comfortable with that scary confusion. Um, and that definition has been really helpful for me to circle back to because um, while it's really nice to have the stress relief and really drop out of the constant thought and constant thinking, um, being able to be present in the face of something serious um, and not like crumble because it's so stressful is one of the really valuable aspects of mindfulness and meditation that's not so often spoken to because a lot of times those experiences are subverted as um, because they're not pleasurable. Um, but I think that's where it, it's actually really important. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Thank you. And I love, I love that definition too. I think I'm going to have to think on that one for a little bit myself, but I, I so appreciate you all, um, sharing your own experience. And, um, I do want to ask you, I let you both know, we, we ask all of our guests kind of the same two final questions. And so I'll, I'll pose them together and you can answer in whichever order you choose, but we like to ask our guests, what are you struggling with right now? And that came out of the fact that we started this podcast as the pandemic started, 
but also it's an important uh, leadership question to acknowledge that we all have those struggles. And secondly, what's the most meaningful thing that a fellow horn frog has done for you recently? I, I'll go first. Um, so thank, thank you, Lindsay. Those are, those are good questions. Um, I would say with struggles, um, there's, you know, some kind of immediate ones, some more like societal and existential. Um, so one of the struggles, and I think everybody obviously is going through this, is just trying to keep their loved ones safe uh, during the pandemic. My mom, who just turned 84, lives with me. And so just the constant struggle of trying to make sure she's safe um, is, is something I've been dealing with. And I know a lot of people have been uh, uh, dealing with that. Um, I would also say, um, you know, it's a very, uh, my father was a political science uh, professor. I kind of grew up around politics, so I followed very closely. And this has been just such a divisive and dysfunctional time. And I, I think I, I was convinced, and I'm sure many others were convinced that we were staring at the abyss uh, and so how to, you know, use these practices in a productive way in this kind of context has been a struggle. Um, and then the other thing I would say is um, seeing students suffer so much um, has really been a struggle because, uh, you know, we're virtual and, you know, th this is good. I mean, we right now we can see each other. Um, so there's, you know, I give I give Zoom classes about a, a B grade. It's it's useful, but it's not the same as being face to face. There's something fundamentally different than that, and um, there's just been so much trauma. I I I just wonder, 10, 20 years from now, you know, students who've lived through this, what they're you know what the long term repercussions will will be and then to your second question um like most professors i can't give one answer i'm going to have to give a bunch uh, you know i have bullet points uh first i'll, I'll mention max uh, max and i have become very good friends and we do a lot of stuff together uh, he's as you can see and the listeners, as, as you can hear, he's, he's very wise and very kind. Um, and he's also a great bread maker. Uh, <laughs> he makes beautiful sourdough bread. But I, I, I did want to say what, what he did for me was um, uh, I, I wrote to him and said, you know, I've got some students from the Mindful Leader class and some uh, business students who are in some of the other mindfulness classes I taught with Andy who might be interested in, you know, joining a group. And Max has a lot of meditation experience. And so he said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I'll lead that. And so that was, that was really a nice thing for him to do. And he's, um, you know, he's led this, this group of, of TCU grads. I want to mention another student uh, who graduated um, maybe 10 years ago. Her name is Lauren Power. And, um, 
Andy Fort and I both had her in class. She's she's really great. Um, she's she is doing a lot of good things in the world. She just finished. She and her husband lived in Singapore and then in Japan for a number of years. Um, and uh, she she is um, she helped me. I'm working on a book with a, a colleague in English, and uh, I needed to or we needed to find somebody to write on a particular topic. And she was she just went out and she got this all done. It was great. Um, so two students, and then I also want to mention Andy. I've said his name many times. Um, he's retired. Uh, he retired in December of 2016. He spent his whole career here. He was our specialist in South Asian religions. He studied a form of Hindu philosophy. But when I came to TCU seven, he was my mentor. Uh, he really took a lot of time to make sure I was succeeding. And then he was the founder of our group and then he handed it over to me. Um, but he's really spent his whole career uh, trying to trying to help people. Um, he was the um, uh, the uh, president of the board of the Tarrant Area Food Bank. Um, and he's just done many other wonderful things for me. So that's kind of a lifetime achievement award, I'll say. And, and uh, Max and Lauren are two students who I connect with regularly. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people probably don't think about that, the joy that professors get from having meaningful relationships with their students and then learning stuff from them. Uh, I think we just have this image that all the knowledge is going in one direction, but that's not the case at all. I, I, I nattered on a little. I was a typical academic. I'll stop. No, that. thank you. Thank you. That was great. Max, what about you? Yeah, so I'll start with a um, question about my fellow horn frogs. In terms of this week, this would for sure have to be um, the highlight. Uh, well, I don't have the privilege of being in the physical community and having that constant interaction, but um, this is really nice. Um, but going back, I guess a, a couple weeks ago, um, we had a meeting to discuss student interests in the contemplative studies group. Uh, and it was a really interesting experience for me to be somewhat removed as an alumni, but seeing younger students, freshmen and sophomore and senior students um, taking interest in um, having a, a, a leadership role in the student community. Um, and that really brought some warmth to my day and then seeing some follow-up around um, who was getting what role and all that sorts of stuff. And that's just one very, a uh, minor aspect of a much larger flourishing that I think the contemplative studies group has been experiencing a, a lot due to Dr. Dennis um, and a number of other factors, but he's, he's the, the face of it. <laughs> um, and I, I have to mention also um, the experience of interacting with Dr. Dennis for this extended period beyond graduating and how valuable that's been from my perspective, uh, I think is maybe hard for him to know by being on the other end, but um, our conversations one-on-one, -on -one, but the opportunities he's plugged me into help me a lot more than just helping him. Um, the, the group with some students that we've been meeting weekly and discussing meditation and 
and practicing together um, has been one of the most meaningful, very small but meaningful communities I've been a part of and to have sort of responsibility towards them um, has been a really um, big moment for me. And that's thanks to Dr. Dennis. And um, there's a few other professors that I'll just name that I've had this sort of relationship with. Um, one, both or two have been mentioned, um, Dr. Fort and Dr. Hester, who I've also continued to meet with this way and um, just found so much value in talking about how life is evolving. And then someone who wasn't mentioned, but is who I think integral to this group is Dr. Dave Afton Dillian. Um, and I think what really helped establish these relationships was how classrooms were oriented when I was at school, which makes me sort of sad to see how it's having to change. Um, but the level of engagement that I felt welcomed to in the classroom um, where I met these professors, uh, I think was sort of the ground for these relationships. So I'm really thankful to just have attended TCU and been in those small classrooms and had such high caliber and warm personality <laughs> professors. Um, and I know I went on for a while, so maybe I can answer the other question quickly about uh, how I have been having a challenging time or, or suffering. And it's similar to a lot of what other people are experiencing, but doesn't really diminish the, um, the issue of lacking constant social connection beyond the um, people in my home is very hard on us as, as humans, just generally. And I, I interact with a lot of colleagues virtually, um, but as, as Mark said, it, it's different. It's like a bee, there's something that's missing. Um, so that's been challenging, especially with the types of um, cultural experiences we've been going through that are very hard to face um, and often having to feel like we're facing that not in the sense of being totally alone, but alone in terms of not being able to have the same social outlets of grabbing coffee and going to restaurants and all that. Um, so I look forward in the future when um, I think of togetherness being present again with <laughs> mindfulness. Um, I think, and this is maybe too scientific of a term, but a co-regulating that happens between people, which I feel is happening now as I see your faces, um, but a lot happens at the physical level in person, which um, keeps us grounded, which I'm excited to hopefully return to <laughs> benefiting from. Yeah, thank you. I like that. I, I like that term too. I, I think maybe similar to mirroring, we talk about in a lot of the dialogue work that I do. So um, yeah. Thank you both so much for, for sharing. I, I will say this has been a real joy for me to hear about um, your experiences and, and the value you found in mindfulness. I'm, I'm new to, uh, to mindfulness and meditation, but I have found so much in it already. And so I've been really excited to share this topic with our listeners and I'm really looking forward to our workshop coming up in a couple of weeks too. Um, I, I just appreciate y'all's time and your candor. 
and I want to thank everyone for joining us for this Leadership from the Couch presented by the TCU Leadership Center as part of Student Development Services. Uh, you can get more information about the Leadership Center, our staff, and Student Development Services in the links in our show notes, along with a lot of other links. So we want you to be able to get lots of information from the things we've talked about in this episode. Finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or have suggestions for topics you want us to talk about or people you think we should be talking to, we want to hear from you. So please email us at leadership.tcu.edu. Thank you to everyone. And we'll talk to you on your couch soon.